This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. Last week I had been talking about the various origin myths of Diwali and Kali Puja. This week Let's talk about um, an exasperating and amusing uh, story of the ways in which the British secret services had tailed Eric Hobsbawm. Hobsbawm, as you know, was probably the best known historian writing in English in the world in the second half of the 20th century. Many would be um, familiar with his trilogy age of revolution age of capital and age of empire together he called them his history of the long 19th century a fourth volume the age of extremes or the history of the short 20th century as he defined it was released in 1992 or so he passed away in 2012 at the ripe old age of 95 now hobsbawm uh, was a lifelong communist and communism was an anathema in britain or at least in the official circles of britain now this is the brief background to why he had been tailed really by the secret services uh francis toner saunders wrote um a detailed piece when the british security services or MI5 released its files on Eric Hobsbawm in 2014. Hobsbawm um had by then passed away. In his memoir Interesting Times, he had warned against autobiographical post-mortem inquests in which the corpse pretends to be the coroner. But whatever self justifications he might have entered as evidence the reading of his file is hampered now by his absence now this really is a consequence of an unwritten rule of mi5 that personal files are only released after their subjects have died another unwritten rule among so many others is that it only releases such material after 50 years that explains why the hobsbawm file deposited at the national archives in kew gardens ends in mid 60s the rest of those files is withheld and researchers who ask for more Uh, will be disappointed they have to wait for another 50 years or perhaps um, every year a detail of a particular year since the 60s may be released but that's not quite the point the point is the pointlessness of the entire exercise as i shall now talk about 
Now, it begins um, in the late 30s, but it must begin really at the instance in 1933 when Hobsbawm entered Britain for the first time. On 25th January 1933, Hobsbawm was 16. He marched with thousands of comrades through central Berlin to the headquarters of German Communist Party, Karl Liebknecht Haus. The temperature was minus 18 degree centigrade. Now, they shuffled and waited in the bone-numbing cold for four hours. They heard the podium speeches of the party keeders. As Hobsbawm recalled later, they were singing the international peasant war songs, the Soviet airmen's song. There were intervals of silence too. The red flags and banners could not dispel the grayness or the feeling that the inevitability of world revolution had been postponed. That um, what faced the movement then was a reckoning of danger, capture, resistance to interrogation, defiance of defeat, so the Communist Party in Germany was about to face a persecution. There was a reason. Only five days later, on 30th January, Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany. On 24th February, the police rounded up the main leaders of the Communist Party. In anticipation of this, the Communist Party of Germany had been sending out its records to private addresses. Its top officials were working out of anonymous premises scattered around the city. But uh, Hobsbawm, in fact, played a small role in this phase of the German Communist Party. Hobsbawm's parents had died within two years of each other. He was living at the time with his aunt in Holland's district. He was not a member of the Communist Party of Germany at the time, but um, a member of what was known as Socialist Student Federation, which was a junior wing of the party. This wing was designed for secondary school students. So, writes Hobsbawm, and I quote, the comrades decided that I was a British subject, I'd be less at risk, or perhaps that the police would be less likely to raid our flat. Hobsbawm later wrote that he kept the rudimentary printing press under his bed for several weeks until someone came to take it away presumably to put it to work for the printing of election leaflets. Now, Hobsbawm did that little bit of party work at the time, but the British Secret Service files 
would not record it, and I'll come to the reason soon. The printing press and the election leaflets. So there was an election to be had, and Hobsbawm decided to participate in the election campaigns, which was little short of suicidal, but Hobsbawm embarked on this, which he called his first piece of genuinely political work. He had the fantasy that uh, it was like playing in the Wild West. And I quote, he wrote, we'd go into the apartment buildings and starting on the top floor, push the leaflets into each flat until we came out of the front door. Panting with the effort and looking for signs of danger, unquote. In his diary, he confessed to a light, dry feeling of contraction, as when you stand before a man ready to punch you, waiting for the blow, unquote. The KPD polled 13% of the vote, that is the German Communist Party, got 13% of the vote and was promptly banned by Hitler's rising party. Less than a month after this, in early April, an uncle arrived in Berlin to remove Hobsbawm to the safety of London, where his paternal grandfather had settled in the 1870s. His entry was not monitored at the time, probably because he was um, in his passport, a subject of the British monarch. Hobsbawm then went up to Cambridge in 1936 and found himself in the midst of what he called, quote, the reddest and the most radical generation in the history of the university, unquote. His enforced abstention from politics came to an end. He was lying low for a while. And he immediately joined the local student branch of the Communist Party. Now, Red Cambridge didn't experience the 1930s as the low dishonest decade, as Auden had observed, but as the time when the good cause confronted its enemies. And the enemies were capitalist and imperialist governments, which had been doing nothing to stop the march of fascism and war. We enjoyed it, Hobsbawm recalled, and we did a certain amount of world saving as a matter of course, because it was the thing to do. He eventually became um, a member of the branch secretariat, the highest political function I have ever occupied. And then he discovered he was not a natural leader and that agitprop was not his true calling. In interesting times, his uh, autobiography, Come memoir, he claimed never to have been recruited for the kind of work that was quite separate from the open activities of a legal political party. In other words, he was never recruited for work that involved espionage or spying. 
about this kind of work, no questions could be asked. But he acknowledged that he would certainly have taken on such work if only he had been asked. After graduating in 1939 with a double first and distinction in both parts, Hobsbawm remained at King's College, Cambridge, as a student researcher until he was called up in February 1940 and assigned to the Royal Engineers as a sapper. He was a little puzzled by this decision because he had initially applied for a cipher course or a decoding course, but it was explained to him that his proposal had been rejected because his mother was German. Still, he enjoyed his life among the sappers and he fulfilled a communist nostrum in practice as well as in theory. He was perhaps the first Kingsman, student of King's College, to operate a road drill. He worked on riveting the walls of giant anti-tank trenches in East Anglia and attached explosive charges to bridges. His unit was stationed in Merseyside during the great Luftwaffe raids on Liverpool in 1941 and mobilized to clear up the ruins on the morning after. Off duty, he attended meetings of the local party branch. By June 1942, he had been transferred to the Army Education Corps as a sergeant instructor, teaching German and running a program on current affairs. On 20th of June, he wrote a letter to a friend, Hans Kahle, inviting him to give a talk to one of the local army units. This is really when the file on Hobsbawm begins. There's a good deal on Hans Kahle. After he wrote the letter, three days later, to be precise, a photocopy of this letter was forwarded to MI5 by a special investigations unit hidden deep within the general post office. A request for a trace on Kali's unknown correspondent, that is Hobsbawm, was immediately sent to the special branch. The special branch came up with the information that a similar name, Hobbs Down, appeared on a list of men in the armed forces who were obviously members of the Communist Party of Great Britain in Merseyside. Now, this, as I said, is the first page of uh, PF211764. That's the file number. So the subject was now of an official target of MI5. Hobsbawm himself had speculated that he had earned an intelligence file by dint of joining the Communist Party while uh, he was at Cambridge. He was wrong about this, though the MI5 used to uh, probably um, trace 
communist party members in Cambridge, if only they had known about his existence at the time. His file was opened because he had unwittingly served himself up as a close associate, that is Kali, of a man believed to be a high-level Soviet agent. MI5 had long been pursuing traces on Kali. Now, he had a record of activism in Germany dating back to 1920s, and he escaped from Berlin at about the same time as Hobsbawm. Kali's file was opened in 1935. It included close knowledge of his work for KPD before that time, and it's likely that some of this intelligence product came from MI5's close association with the Gestapo. Hans Kali had escaped to Switzerland, but in 1935, he went to Moscow. A year later, he appeared in Spain as commander of the 11th International Brigade. He was also, according to information with MI5, the leader of OGPU, one of KGB's predecessors, in Madrid. In 1939, this notorious and particularly dangerous, these were words used by MI5, character was briefly in London before being interned as an enemy alien to the Isle of Man. He was later deported to Canada. He was released in December 1940 and he once again returned to London and worked to recruit anti-Nazi refugees to the Free German Brigade. MI5 alleged that he was using this cover to run an espionage system for Moscow. Interestingly, Kale is not mentioned in Hobsbawm's autobiography, and it's possible that the friendship simply lapsed along with the memory of how it was formed. Hobsbawm didn't fight for the good cause in Spain, though his account in interesting times of hitchhiking in the French Pyrenees and wandering across the border for an afternoon strikes a strange note. Did he already know Kale? Was he intending to join his brigade before suffering a crisis of nerves? Had Hobsbawm been allowed to see his MI5 file, perhaps he would have had some answers. In any case, um, it has more on Hans Kale than on Hobsbawm. MI5 stepped up its search for traces of Hobsbawm in its own records. These records were housed in the registry as a mass of dry paper, inside which were warm trails waiting to be followed. Now, this repository or the registry of MI5 contained an estimated 5 lakh files by the mid-1950s and were organized according to an elaborate system of cross-referencing. There were three kinds of files, personal files, subject files, and Y boxes. 
An officer could obtain a Y box, and Y box were marked with a yellow card, only by indoctrination into its contents given by a controlling officer or the director general himself. In August 1942, Y boxes 2127 and 927 yielded a few mentions of Hobsbawm's name. The extracts copied into his file from these boxes were taken from transcribed conversations of functionaries of the Communist Party of Great Britain or CPGB. Now, the office of CPGB at Covent Garden was comprehensively bugged by security agencies. The building was studded with hidden microphones, and all telephone calls were permanently monitored. Product received from this listening devices were codenamed Source North. The transcription center was known as the Gristery, after the formidable supervisor, Evelyn Grist. The actual recording was done by specialist post office employees in a separate room. Telephone intercepts were recorded on dictaphone cylinders, and the microphone circuits were recorded on acetate gramophone discs. The recording was then handed over to be transcribed in the gristery. So the Y box transcript featuring Hobsbawm confirmed that he was at the time an active member of CPGB and that the party was seeking to use his presence in the armed forces to its advantage. This was in fact already the case. Pressed by MI5, Hobsbawm's commanding officer now returned a more critical appraisal of his activities. Now he wrote that Sergeant Hobsbawm was a highly partisan soldier, and I quote, he has a tendency to produce left-wing literature and to leave it lying about. He's known on one occasion to have invited a warrant officer to join the Communist Party. Hobsbawm had been reprimanded in the presence of officers for the abuse of his position as a teacher and for continuously presenting current affairs in a partisan light, unquote. And from now on, he was only to be employed in the teaching of elementary German classes. It was agreed that he should be kept under close and careful observation. Hobsbawm was now a marked man. And he knew it because a friendly sergeant in field security had told him. He took the matter up with his commanding officer, complaining that he was a political victim. His membership of the Communist Party was perfectly legal and his attempts to infuse drive in the soldiers was far from being patriotic. It was, in fact, consonant with national policy. Technically, he was right. Britain's wartime alliance with the Soviets was shouldered by 
a comprehensive campaign of positive propaganda. The image of the fanatic Bolshevik was replaced with that of the valiant Russian defending universal civilized values. In fact, many prominent intellectuals and writers were employed in government departments to produce this image and other uh, such propaganda, including George Orwell. Following his reprimand, Hobsbawm pulled his neck in, but MI5, working on the principle that any change in demeanor must be a stratagem, a calculated deception, continued to monitor him. The suspicions were further aroused when Southern Command reported that Hobsbawm knew he was being watched. Now, for a surveillance operation to be effective, it must go unnoticed by the target. Now, MI5 burglary teams in the 1950s were acutely conscious of living behind their own smell. Hobsbawm was now, in MI5 usage, a surveillance-sensitive character. Now, this would explain his muted posture and the interruption of contact with Kali. He was trying to throw the MI5 off the scent. But Hobsbawm's file continued to gain mileage. We find that over the next two years, he applied several times for transfer, but was denied. In May 1944, he was stationed briefly on the Isle of Wight, where he saw the gathering of the invasion fleet for France, but it was quickly deemed essential to post him somewhere else as soon as possible in view of the many secret and operational activities going on in and around the island, according to MI5. So he was sent off to Sheltonham, assigned to a military hospital to teach handicrafts. And I quote, every day of this existence, he wrote, was a reminder that I was doing nothing to win the war and that nobody would let me near any job, however modest, where my qualifications might have been some use for this purpose. Unquote. A few months later, at MI5's initiative, Hobsbawm was removed from the overseas embarkation list, meaning he could not go abroad. And he wrote, I volunteered to go abroad, but nobody wanted to know. And MI5 thought he would be far better kept under our eye in this country. In April 1945, just as the Red Army reached Berlin, Hobsbawm applied for a job in the BBC Services Education Unit and was deemed a most suitable candidate. But again, MI5 stepped in warning the personnel department that, I quote, he is not likely to lose any opportunity to disseminate propaganda and obtain recruits for the Communist Party, unquote. The BBC consequently agreed to arrange that Hobsbawm will not be accepted for the proposed employment. And in the event of his applying at a later date, his name were to be referred to MI5 for vetting, 
before any other action was taken. On 8 February 1946, after six years in uniform, Sergeant Hobsbawm's pointless war came to an end. For the rest of his life, he was to regret that as far as the greatest and the most decisive crisis in the history of modern world was concerned, I might as well not have been there. Now, MI5 had been closely tailing him, but so far there was no photograph. There's, however, an interesting description of Hobsbawm's uh, physical features. When Hobsbawm took the chair at a discussion on history teaching at school and university, organized by the historian's group of the Communist Party, on 15th October 1958, he wasn't aware of being scrutinized by a plain clothes special branch officer in the audience. But as he pleaded for history teachers to adapt themselves to the changing history of the world, there was one Sergeant G. Fryer who took his features down, and I quote, height Six feet one inches, slim build, eyes blue, pale complexion, hair light brown, long oval face, large nose and ears, thick lips, unquote. This description was added to Hobsbawm's personal file 211764. Now, it had contained six volumes, one volume for every year. According to Hobsbawm's frank admissions in interesting times, in the 1930s, he would have done underground work if he was asked. His friendship with Kale had prompted the suspicion at MI5 that he might indeed uh, have been given the touch by a Kremlin-directed agent that he himself could be a Soviet courier, a spy even, one of those types who had fallen asleep in Marx's bed and woken up in Stalin's pocket. It is clear from the first two volumes of his personal file, which cover his wartime career, that he was to be kept not only from influencing his fellow servicemen, but from any contact with military operations. This was an unusual measure, even for known communists in the forces. However much he yearned to join the fight against the Nazis, Hobsbawm was in effect a military target himself, cornered and neutralized by MI5 self-styled attacks Nobody wanted Hobsbawm in the army. But once out of it, the job of containing him became more complicated. There's no evidence that he was tailed by watchers. He was certainly held to be an ongoing security risk. And the invisible fence that had so effectively perimeter his life in the army was continuously policed after demobilization he had returned to his research at King's, but the university as a whole held him at arm's length. 
It turned him down for several posts over the next decade, despite his uh, his eminent qualifications. He assumed this um, would have had something to do with his doctoral supervisor, M.M. Poston. Poston, uh, when giving references, and I quote Hobsbawm, helped to keep me out of jobs by pointing out to anyone concerned that I was a communist, unquote. No doubt MI5 was also involved. A gentle prompt over the college snuff box would suffice. For all that, in 1947, Hobsbawm managed to secure a lecturership in history at Birkbeck College. At Birkbeck, quite exceptionally for that period, there was no discernible signs of anti-communism among the staff or students. So there's more to the story, really. I'd like to talk about uh, the surveillance procedure of MI5 and uh, the overall culture of British um, anxiety against the Communist Party. For that, let's wait for another episode. I'd like to speak at length about the remainder of the Hobsbawm file and the culture of anxiety against communism in Britain. See you in the next episode then.